Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, hello everyone. You're uh, listening to 3CR Community Radio. Time is just after 7.30 and of course it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy and uh, we have another full studio this morning to to try and uh, educate you, to try and share ideas with you. We'd love you to to join in during the program. But uh, first up, I have to say a very good morning to Penny Woodward, who's been missing for the last couple of months. Hi, Pam. It's lovely to be back again, and I'm sorry I haven't been here. I've just been really busy doing You've been having stuff. adventures, yes, though. travelling <laughs> and doing lots of talks, and it just didn't coincide with my usual day for being here, so you very kindly gave me a couple of days off. <laughs> Good. Well, but you have been down to Tassie. I did. I went down to um, Tassie for the Cunha Garlic Festival, and it was another fantastic event. In fact, the whole of February was Garlic Month, and we did we had a whole lot of stuff happening during that month, which all went really well. The Manian Garlic Festival had um, something like ten thousand people there, so that was pretty. That's impressive. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So very exciting. Yeah. And then March is just always a really busy month for um, for gardening things with Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show and and again I was doing talks and things around that and um, and then last month I just went away for Easter. <laughs> Good, <laughs> as you should. Yes. <laughs> Which okay. was my scheduled day on, so yes. Yeah. No, all's good. Excellent. But we're, we're very happy to see you back. Yeah, it's nice to be back and, okay. it's, and have the chance to talk about a few things. Yeah. It'll be good. Yep. Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill. Good morning. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, listeners. And I've been trying to persuade you to take a holiday too, but you're, you're not giving into it at the moment. Uh, no, well, sometime or other. But uh, no, I'm just enjoying life tootling along at the moment, enjoying the season. For us, it's been pretty good. How's the autumn colour up your way? Is it finished yet? Um, uh, just the last, the last few leaves. But uh, no, it's it's been a reasonable season. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had a tiny bit too much rain to have uh, an ideal season. It should be dry and cool for a good autumn, and we we had a little bit more rain than most. Um, but the the last uh, week or two has been really good. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good. And, of course, um, this is the time when everyone should have been out in their gardens busily planting while the soil was still warm, but I think that soil's cooling down fairly rapidly now. Very, very rapidly. Yes. And it's been down our way. We haven't had as much rain, and, and although the peninsula is not renowned for autumn <laughs> colour, where we have had trees, we've had some fabulous colour. So, um, And that, I think, has been because it's been drier, and we, we got rain a couple of days ago, but that's the first that we've had for okay. a few weeks. So, right. um, yeah, no, it's, it's been good. Excellent. We also have to welcome back to the studio um, Tim Sansom. Good morning, Tim. Morning, Pam. Morning, listeners. And um, we're going to have a good chat about this, but I now have to introduce you with a, a different title. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which I've changed might jobs. Pick up yeah. on. Yes. So you're actually now Nursery General Manager at Australian Ecosystems. That's right, yeah. So about the uh, start of March, I started uh, at Australian Ecosystems. Um, uh, which is a bit of a change for me, or actually a bit of a return to where I was 25 years ago, actually. Okay. I, I studied environmental management at university uh, and then moved into urban food production and worked with the Diggers Club for the last 13 years. 
Uh, now I'm back into the natural resource management space. Mm. So at Australian Ecosystems, we grow uh, indigenous native plants for the greater Melbourne area with a speciality in uh, predominantly in aquatics, so wetland installations. So our nursery operation is part of an integrated operation where we actually grow the plants that then get installed into the landscape in uh, constructed wetlands, which is all about water treatment and uh, ecology and um, supporting biodiversity. And we also have a maintenance and follow-up crew. So we basically get these Right from the beginning lands, and you follow yep, it through. Yep. Right the way through mm. to a functioning e- ecosystem, mm. which is exciting space to be in. Oh, yes. Mm. Um, and and I, I, I admit I, I jumped on your website yesterday <laughs> to have a bit of a squizzy. A lot of your projects seem to be quite large projects. Yeah, very large projects. So some of them well, uh, we've done – the company's been going for about – just under 20 years. It was, okay. it was founded by uh, a couple of guys called Brendan Condon and Damien Cook, uh, which, and it came out of um, a, a need to... When, when Melbourne Water, what, 20, 30 years ago, uh, ascertained that there needed to be a water improvement policy around the bay, uh, so all the, all the catchments that were running, which were dis- discharging water into the bay, uh, required better remedial treatment for the, for the stormwater systems. You can mm-hmm. imagine urban environments have a lot of stormwater discharge from you know, hard surfaces and, uh, and, and rooftops, and so stormwater charging was really, really significant, and that water needed to be mediated and treated in some way so that it was what was running into the bays and creeks mm. was, uh, was a better quality. And that's been a pretty successful program over the last 20-odd years, and Australian ecosystems have been pretty heavily part of that. There's... Uh, a lot of industrial and, and urban developments, so, so residential developments where there have been construction wet, constructed wetlands that we've installed, some of the, um, I guess, some of the exemplars in the industry. Uh, there's a terrific couple of examples down the end of Springvale Road in down that way, down southeast way. Tim's, uh, Tim's pointing. Yeah, I'm pointing. Yeah, I'm, pointing. Yeah, I'm pointing north. I'm not very good. Pointing for, north, yeah. I'm not very good for radio. Um, where, where basically... Uh, what were drainage lines were turned into completely functioning ecosystems which treat water. So the, there's a, a whole heap of plant material planted in, the, in the, all the, the levels of the water catchments and on the ephemeral side banks. Um, so you get water treatment um, by the action of biology in the plants with plants that are in the water, or the, the true aquatics, and then actually grasslands and woodlands planted around those in an urban context which, which brings wildlife in, mm. and then the water quality is massively improved on the way through. Mm. So it's exciting stuff. Oh, very. And I notice you have a permit for actually um, going out and collecting uh, native seed. Yeah, we have, we have actually a dedicated seed collection team. Um, we have what is probably the biggest seed bank or the most um, in-depth, uh, most diverse seed bank for Australian natives in, in, or Victorian natives, greater Melbourne natives, of anyone in, in this space. So we collect all our own seed, have a, t- a dedicated team of three staff that through the summer months plus some other contractors that collect our own seed uh, and we grow everything from that by provenance and by local region. So we break greater Melbourne into four regions mm-hmm. uh, and, and keep our seed based on that on those regions and can also do quite specific provenance um, selections by location. So we actually GPS locate where each of our seed lots come from. Wow. So we can actually be quite specific, which is often part of the remit that we get from Parks Victoria or, 
or local councils or Greening Australia. These yep. are some of the clients that we deal with. Or Melbourne Water are one of our bigger clients too. Yep, yep, yep. Hmm. Fantastic. You have to be very organised with all that cataloguing of things. Yes, it's, yeah, there's lots of organisation, lots of background information that has to be kept together and that's, that's one of the challenges that we face. But it's, that's one of the things that we do um, at a level that is not done very commonly. Mm. So how large is the nursery area? Uh, it's probably about three hectares. Right. Um, and as we have, so we've got a couple of different areas that we grow in. We've got a, a large multi-span uh, igloo, which we've got quite intense growing, and we also have a lot of wet beds because we're growing aquatic plants, so yes, we're growing course. plants in in water. Okay. Uh, which is which is different for me. I've not really done that before, so I'm learning a lot about how to how to grow things in water. Okay. Mm. Yes. Fantastic. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't suppose you spotted, uh, Tim, you spotted the, um, um, the segment on the, uh, on the, uh, uh, the ABC program last night. I did, actually. Oh, right. <laughs> well, well, this yes. is exactly, uh, yeah. yes, the Gardening Australia segment, uh, the Indra and, uh, Nadu. Yes, uh, I on, on the, um, collection of stormwater and the use of, uh, and, well, reclaiming of stormwater, uh, well, Putting st- uh, stormwater back into the environment, I suppose. Yeah. Well, that, I think that was in Sydney. Somewhere. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And right in the middle of Sydney. Yeah, and there's plenty of equally spectacular examples in Melbourne too. I think actually Brendan, who's um, the founder of one of the founders of Australian Ecosystems, is doing a story coming up on Gardening Australia okay. on the TV show, showing a similar sort of example in Melbourne. Um, where we've yeah, because we've got some. I was actually just this week out at this one in Springvale called Waterways, and it's. A stunning landscape yeah. that, that is you wouldn't believe that it was constructed. It, it actually feels like a wild landscape, and with the with the wildlife and with the eco functions that that all comes with, it's really impressive. Mm, that's wonderful. Yeah, mm. oh, I look forward to seeing that segment then. Yeah, so, yeah. You don't know when it's coming up. I don't actually know. Mm. Okay. Um, I know. Well, I, I, AB, who's on this show, yes. did some research for that, so I was. All right. So she might have a better idea okay. when it's going to be aired. <laughs> I'll find out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, I must get to some community announcements. Uh, there aren't many uh, because, um, of course, a lot of uh, <coughs> a lot of the events closed down over the winter period. But uh, uh, then, of course, we get the high volume back again next spring. But uh, today is your last chance, first of all, to visit a couple of open gardens for Open Gardens Victoria. They are then, uh, after today, going into recess until the middle of September. So if you're keen to go and have another look at uh, some open gardens, today is your last chance for a little while. Now, um, both of these gardens are up in uh, (coughs) a similar area, so you could happily go to both gardens today. The first one is Ivy Lee, which is at One Wild Duck Way in Whittlesea. Now, uh, both of these gardens are open 10 through till 4.30. Entry price is $8. Under 18s are free. Students, $5 entry. Now, Ivy Lee is um, a large uh, country cottage-style <coughs> garden. Lots of deciduous trees, which they say should still be in their autumn glory, such as Manchurian pear, crabapples, tulip trees, golden elms, and on it goes. Now, um, the garden is open, opening uh, in support of the Otis Foundation. There's also going to be things like ice cream and coffee for sale, cut flowers and local produce, and also there'll be musical performances. Now, the other garden uh, which is nearby is Oak House Garden. This is at 1434 Whittlesea Yay Road in King Lake West. 
Again, open 10 through to 4.30. Now, this garden has fully recovered from the Black Saturday 2009 bushfires. Um, it's a woodland garden. It contains many rare and unusual specimen trees and shrubs and a large collection of succulents and cacti housed, housed within two glass houses. Now, um, the space... Uh, has many different uh, areas to linger in. You can have a picnic on the lawns, you can wander through the recovered bushland and there'll also be photographs on display which show the pre and post fire landscape. So I'll just mention those two addresses again. Firstly Ivy Lee, one Wild Duck Way in Whittlesea and the other one Oak House Garden, 1434 Whittlesea Yay Road in King Lake West. Now, um, also, uh, I have mentioned this over the last couple of weeks. Um, if you're really keen to participate, you might well be able to, uh, to get in touch with them tomorrow. Uh, but this is some um, botanical art workshops being run by the Friends of Burnley Gardens. And it's a series of four workshops, uh, and it does start next Wednesday. So, um, as I say, if you're anxious to uh, be able to participate in this, um, you will need to contact them uh, tomorrow morning uh, fairly early, I would imagine. But um, Marley Moore is, uh, is going to be uh, uh, giving these workshops. As I said, the, it runs for four sessions of two and a half hours each. The medium will be watercolour pencils. It's a small class size. And uh, the uh, participants will also have the opportunity to have uh, botanic, their botanical illustrations included in a soon-to-be-published book on Burnley Gardens. So there's added incentive if you're a, a budding um, botanical artist. Now, uh, the details, as I said, it runs uh, starting next Wednesday, then the 31st of May, and then two more sessions, 7th and 14th of June. Times at 10 a.m. till 12:30 p.m. Uh, the cost, if you're a, uh, a member of the Friends Group, $200. If you're a non-member, $240. The venue is Burnley Campus, of course, uh, 500 Yarra Boulevard there in Richmond. Uh, parking, uh, there's a rear car park off FR Smith Drive. Now. Bookings are essential, and as I mentioned, you will need to contact them early. You can phone Janine, and the number is 0412 097 068. That's 0412 097 068. Now, uh, also coming up, um, let me see, Werribee Park have got their autumn plant sale coming up on the 27th of May, which is next Saturday, 10 through till 3 p.m. You enter via Gate 2, which is the main visitor car park. They'll have over 1,600 plants grown by the Friends Groups. There'll be fruit trees and edible plants from Heritage Orchard. There'll be assorted bulbs and perennials and also herbs from the community garden there. So that's next Saturday, 10 through till 3, down at Werribee, Enter via gate two. Uh, just two more that I should mention. Firstly, um, <clears throat> the uh, the Australian Plant Society Keelor Plains Group 
will be meeting on Friday, June the 2nd at 7.45. They'll have Sally Lamborn uh, giving a presentation on weeds of Victoria's Central Highlands. Now, the address is Rally Road Activity Centre, 54 Rally Road in Maribyrnong there. If you'd like more information, you can contact the Secretary, Anne, and her number is 9336-3228. That's 9336-3228. And finally... Um, the uh, group, uh, friends group down at uh, Cranbourne Botanic Gardens are holding their next uh, very special day. Now, this is a day with Attila Capitani talking all things Australian sub, uh, succulents as well as boabs and bottle trees. Now, it'll take place at the Australian Garden Auditorium there at Cranbourne Gardens. Um, as I mentioned, Saturday the 17th of June... Now, the program starts, <coughs> uh, the actual talk starts at uh, 11 a.m. till 12 noon, but Attila will be in the garden shop starting from 10 o'clock. He'll then be in the auditorium for morning tea to have a chat to people. Then, as I say, the first talk starts at 11, and uh, that will be on Australian succ uh, succulents. Then, uh, after that talk, he'll be back in the garden shop. There'll be lunchtime. Then uh, again at 1.45, he'll be in the auditorium to chat to people. And the second talk will take place at 2, running 2 till 3, and that will be the talk on boabs and bottle trees. Now, the day will then end uh, uh, with him in the garden for afternoon, in the auditorium, I should say, for afternoon tea, and uh, then in the garden shop. Now, you can book for one presentation or both presentations, depending on... Uh, whether you want to stay there for the full day or whether you want to only stay for half a day. Uh, the pricings for the day, the morning talk on Australian succulents, which includes refreshments, for members of Cranbourne Botanic Gardens, uh, $20. For non-members, $25. Students, $10. The same with the afternoon talk on BOABs. Um, $20 members, $25 non-members, $10 students. But if you'd like to stay for the full day, both talks with refreshments, for the members, $30, and for non-members, $40. So uh, uh, you are encouraged to uh, stay for the whole day if, if you've got the time and you can do that. Now, if you'd like further information, uh, you can phone 8774-2483. That's 8 double seven four two four eight three or you can email um rg elliot at optusnet.com.au and elliot only has one t so it's r-g-e-l-l-i-o-t at optusnet.com.au all right well it's high time we opened up our talkback lines and we invited our listeners to join us if you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we have uh, Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill. We have Penny Woodward for all things edible and herbs. Or we have Tim Sanson from Australian Ecosystems. Do give us a call. That number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Penny, organic gardener. 
They've done it yes, again. They've, they've put out another essential guide, although I noticed that they haven't actually written essential guide on the cover this time. But it, this is number 13. So, Has it been that many? Yeah, they've been doing them Gosh. for a long time yes. now. Um, okay. And, and look, there, there are people who actually own all of them because they're a really nice collection of things on specific topics. So the way they work is that um, we... They collect together the articles that have been published in the last few years mm-hmm. on a specific topic, and where there are gaps, they commission new articles. So there are some new articles and there are some art- older articles from the magazine. And this okay. one this time is all about urban farming. So trying to tap in, I guess, to the current zeitgeist. <laughs> and um, it, it's got some um, really interesting articles. It's got some great ideas. Um, there are some lovely sort of plans for what you can do in small spaces. Um, there's information about soil and um, compost and, you know, so all the starting things that you need. And um, and then there are inspirational examples of, of different things that, that different people are doing in smaller and, and bigger areas. So um, Karen Sutherland has a lovely article about her garden, which I haven't seen her actually given the chance to write about her own garden before and also what she has on her nature strip um, there's and there's a little bit about keeping animals so there's there's um, a bit about chooks and and other animals that you can keep in small spaces as well as on bees and rooftop gardens and community gardens and school gardens and so everything that might be happening in the in the inner city. It's very comprehensive. I mean, you've got things on worms, uh, wicking beds. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, we tried to... Um, I actually had the, had the joy of going back through all the issues, trying to identify what might work, you know, what might pull together to create this, this whole thing. So um, it was really interesting going back, and, and as part of that I had to reread a lot of the articles. And... I. Just, I'm always impressed by the quality of, mm. the, of the writing mm. for the magazine. So, um, and as I often say, so I always learn new things, and I love my job because I'm learning new things all the time. Every time I edit, you know, do the hort edit for the magazine, I, I learn lots of new things that I didn't know. I notice I've even included green walls. Yes, and um, and of course community gardens there, sharing the growing experience. And I'm delighted that uh, because Organic Gardener magazine has been following a young couple mm. over several magazines, and um, I'm delighted that you've also included uh, this young couple. Yeah, no, that, that particular young couple that you're looking at, I think we've only looked at them once, but there's been another couple oh, there's been that another we've been couple following been, where yes. they, um, we actually helped them to put their garden together into an edible garden, but that is in there as well, so... Fantastic. Yeah, so the, it it goes from really tiny inner city spaces all the way to sort of fringe areas where people are, are setting up small farms mm. on on areas on the edges of the city. So and you know what else is great about this is that I'm picking it up and I've been gardening for 20 odd years yeah. and there's stuff in here for me to learn. Yes. But it also goes right back to basics for those who mm. are starting out and in any context because yep. you know it's it like you say it's got material in here for someone who's got a tiny little space and is looking to to figure out a way to grow a bit of food or uh, in a in a courtyard on a on a balcony on a rooftop yeah. uh and or someone who's got much greater area and much more expertise so there's a bit of something for everyone mm. everyone 
Uh, I, I just flipped to a there's a seed sowing guide. So there's there's plenty of of really excellent um, information in there. Um, things like thinning out and planting and uh, yeah. you know so. Good, strong so good, basics as yeah, well. Yeah, well, yeah. that's the first section. Then the second yeah. section, you're getting in what to do Into with those skills and, and how to grow. So that there isn't sort of specific information on how to grow carrots. And no. How to grow. It's about the, the spread of all the different things that you can do in small spaces. Mm. Yeah. And there's such a movement around growing food in, in our cities uh, and, these days. And it's so essential. I mean, yeah. it's all part of greening the cities and mm. whether it's whether you're planting trees or whether you're planting veggies and food and that sort of thing. It's just such an essential part. Of I, I read a statistic the other day that I think currently Melbourne, uh, the food, fresh produce in Melbourne, is 40% of it is grown within Victoria. And there's a projection that by 2050 it'll be less than 20% because the pressures of, of, of population of growth and development yes. are yeah. pushing that further out. So if we can look at ways of bringing our mm. food production mm. into the oh, city absolutely. and closing those loops, mm. there's, there's terrific... Um, uh, impetus there for people to do it, and there's some exciting technology around that too. Mm. I'd like at some point this morning to talk about the other um, company that are associated with Australian Ecosystems Absolutely. called Foodwall, um, and we do advanced wicking bed systems, yep. which fit perfectly into this yep. urban garden. Fantastic. Thing. Yep. Okay. Well, um, Organic Gardener have very kindly given us three copies of this uh, this uh, wonderful production. Um, if any of our listeners out there would, would like to get their hands on a copy, now it does, uh, recommended retail price is ten ninety five. Is it out in the newsagents news yet, agents, Penny? Newsagents, yeah. So yep. you don't look for it in bookshops. It's, no, no. It's, it's produced where you'd buy the magazine. You'll be able to buy, the, buy yep. these. Yep. Fantastic. But what we're offering this morning, um, and we're including uh, <coughs> with the, uh, the guide... Um, a little sample sachet of <coughs> eco seaweed as well. But uh, <coughs> we will throw in free postage this morning. So for $12 to support uh, the 3CR Gardening Show, um, as I say, you'll get the magazine, uh, you'll get a little sachet of eco seaweed and we'll include free postage in that. So for $12, we have three copies only. If you'd like to uh, grab one of those copies and support the gardening show, uh, give us a call now. Jan's on the phone and uh, she can take your details and uh, if you want it posted out, we'll post it out to you. The number 94190155. That's 94190155. And I have to say, Penny, a big congratulations to Organic Gardener because I think these essential guides are fantastic. They're very comprehensive. They cover <clears throat> one single theme, um, you know, covering mm. all aspects of that, that topic, and I, I think they're doing a great job with it. Thanks, Pam. Yeah, we're pretty proud of them. Yeah, Sorry. absolutely. <laughs> so you should be. Okay. Um, <clears throat> while I'm mentioning phone lines, uh, we have got some listeners jumping on board already, but if you'd like to ring in and join us this morning, we'd love to hear from you, 94190155. We'll go first up to uh, Daniel, who's in Hallam. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, guys. How are you? We're well. Yeah, look, I have a question. Um, the first year I established my front garden, I've got a lot of salvias and pentamons and all that sort of thing. I, everything looked great. I planted it all in April, and by springtime it looked fantastic. So the next year I figured I'd cut everything back to exactly the same size as when they'd all started. But things took so long 
when I cut them back in April, over winter, they all just sort of stay dormant. And I'm just wondering, I'm too scared to cut things back now. What is the best time of the year to cut back things like pentstemons and salvias? And I even had some agastache that took off like a rocket the first time. And when I cut that back, it really affected it and didn't really come back as good as I thought it would. So when's the best time to sort of cut back things like that? The general rule of thumb is when it finishes flowering, but uh, Jeremy, <laughs> your thoughts? Um, we generally cut back. This is in a, a cloud hill across uh, Alinda, so uh, we, we have a particular climate which uh, makes it slightly more awkward than, than, it, uh, than the average gardener around Melbourne. But we generally cut back around about now. Um, yeah. But we cut back... Um, we leave a few things just to... to uh, have a bit of interest in the garden over the winter. Um, this year we're going to cut back in about two or three weeks' time, uh, simply because the, the perennials are looking quite interesting at the moment. Um, now, there are a few things uh, that you have to be aware of, and, and the pentamins and agastaches are uh, two of them, I feel. Uh, it is possible if you cut them right back, and, and, and uh, you know, some people uh, cut them right back to the ground, to, to within a a centimetre or two of the ground um, if, you, if they're sitting for the winter now they're not going to grow at all uh, during the winter and so if they're sitting with those uh, that open wood exposed you can get fungal diseases infecting the, the plants and uh, some plants seem more prone to this than others but you mentioned two of them straight away <laughs> uh, now it's uh, just leaving them, on the other hand, uh, well, uh, if you just leave uh, pentamins year by year, they, they just turn into great sprawling masses of nonsense. So it is essential to cut them back. And so most probably the best thing is to cut them back uh, to uh, about 10 centimetres or so at the beginning of the winter and then give them a final cut back as they're starting to grow in the spring. Um, You'll, you'll see them burst into life in around about uh, the end of um, August, uh, certainly September, and um, they'll be coming from below the cuts. And so, just take back those those stems. Otherwise, you end up with uh, something which is very awkward to weed amongst uh, during the, the the following season. So it's complicated. You have to work it out plant by plant, really. Yeah, and can I can I just add to that that I, with my agastache it died back, so I just cut the dead flower heads off, and and it will reshoot again in spring. Um, but at the moment, both my penstemons and a lot of my salvias are actually in flower, and and I really enjoy those flowers in the garden, and they will go right into winter. But I'm in a frost-free area. So it depends what your climate is. So I actually won't cut my penstemons back and probably until late winter and then they'll come back into flower later in, in spring. Um, and pretty much the same for the salvias because I have other yeah, things... Yeah, they're flowering now. Yeah, they're all flowering yeah, at the yeah, moment. Yeah. So I, I have other things that are in flower in early spring and then by cutting these ones back, I, they then come back into flower later in spring and I'm quite happy with that. And they don't have to be really big to produce you know, great flowers so you don't have to get you know, big, vigorous growth every year. There are certainly some things that don't like being cut back. And yeah, yeah agastaches. Right. We we I, we struggle to keep them over the winter. Yeah. 
Um, is, it, is that a combination of heavy soil and cold yeah, and the cold damp yeah. conditions yeah. over yeah. the yes? Because yeah. in my place they yeah. they're still flowering. I've yeah. still got some flower. I'm similar to Penny. It's, we don't get frost where I am. Uh, relatively heavy soil, but not not super heavy clay. They're still flowering now, and I actually don't cut those agastaches back until the weather starts to warm again. Yep. Because then uh, then I, they're in active growth, and it, it, it avoids that dormant that sort of dormant fungal period. Yep. Um, I've, Which I've might be the case for Hallam, where Daniel is. Like, if 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 it gets, if he's not getting super cold winters, you can delay that cutting back. Yeah, yeah. plants need cutting back, but it, but uh, there are strong aesthetic. Uh, well, num- number one, uh, disease uh, uh, considerations uh, that uh, need to be taken into account, and then. From our viewpoint, there are aesthetic uh, considerations as well. And so we go back and cut back quite a bit that's looking untidy and, and, and leave the plants which are looking interesting. Mm. Um, then, but uh, at some point, everything has to be cut back. That's right. Does that yeah. help you at all, Daniel? Definitely does. Yeah, I think the things that's flattering our beaches get cut them. So, yeah, I just think I'll leave. Things for a while, got some colour over winter. Yeah. Yep, yep. Idea. Sounds like a good idea. Okay, right, then. Thank you. Bye. Thank you guys. Bye. Bye. Right, next up we're going to Joan, who's in Windsor. Good morning, Joan. Good morning. Um, look, I, I've got a, a household home tip. Um, a girlfriend has given me a recipe for um, a weed killer. But I'm just concerned that it might leave residual in the garden that, you know, it might change the pH or or it might leave something that, you know, I don't want. So I just wanted to check with you to make sure that it was okay. Okay. It's um, a gallon of vinegar, two cups of Epsom salt and a quarter of a cup of dishwashing liquid. And she says you spray that, you spray that in the morning and by evening weeds are gone. <laughs> um, look... It's it's one of those ones, and there are quite a few sort of homemade weed um, solutions that are probably okay to use in areas where you've got paths and where you've got gravel driveways and that sort of thing. Yep. Um, because you're ne- you're not going to want to plant in them um, because that much vinegar, and it's the same with with using salt to kill weeds, mm. um, and the and the soap content is going to affect the um, the soil, yeah. so you will struggle to grow anything in it. I wouldn't use that sort of spray on a on a garden bed, for instance, right. where I want to grow things. Yeah, well, I, I've mainly I've got um, a, a gravel area which I struggle to to maintain um, yeah. free of weeds, so it'd be okay for that, but not into the soil. Um, uh, yes, yeah. Look, probably I there's a there's I don't usually sort of recommend um, commercial products, but um, Echo Organic has a new product called. Um, Echo Slasher, I think is the name. Oh, Echo. Um, Echo, Echo Slasher. Slasher. And it... Um, such great names. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Slasher. It's, it works on um, plant oils, but it's not... It's some, some of the um, weedicides that work on plant oils are also residual in the soil and they can build up, like the pine oil mm. ones. But this one doesn't seem to have that same residual effect and I would use that quite confidently on garden beds. Oh, terrific. Thank you very much for that. Okay. Thank you. Bye. And I also use weed burners on my areas. On gravel paths. On gravel paths. Yeah. Yeah. A a gas weed burner or gas weed wand works perfectly well for knocking off those bits and pieces where it's it's a path or something like that where Mm. you're not going to grow things. Yep. 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 Excellent. Okay. And it's quite good fun to torch weeds too. (laughs) (laughs) 
I have a I have a husband who's quite keen on poisoning things. <laughs> yeah. and I've managed to wean him off poisoning things by and getting him getting him onto pyrotechnics. Oh, yes, pyrotechnics. <laughs> exactly. Just don't do it in the middle of summer, and don't do it near the car. Well, don't do it near a hedge <laughs> either. I have heard stories of of people flame weeding underneath hedges, oh, God, and hedges yes. notoriously have yeah, dry material underneath them, it. and it's pretty <laughs> yes. quick for them to go up. Yes. I won't name names, but I know of stories. Now <laughs> is a good time of year if you're going to do that sort of is to do it because the things aren't dry enough in, in a lot of cases to catch fire but um, and it's not so wet because I find with the weed flaming that sometimes the grass what, whatever you're trying to kill is so wet that it's actually quite hard to dry it out mm. and, and crum- make it crumble as well mm. um, but now is quite a good time I think it's it. important to note for anyone out there with a flame weeder yeah. that it's useful in those tiny little weeds when yeah. they're just the, the big broadleaf yeah. weeds when they're that big yeah. You know, Although it, the one thing it is I did fun, find but it does, it's not as effective. <laughs> the one thing I did find that it absolutely melts is oxalis. Oh yes. Now, yeah. if you're working on the basis of trying to control oxalis by continually getting rid of the green matter above the, at the surface, then the weed burners mm. are really good. You will eventually you exhaust the bulb. Yeah. 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 But I've never seen anything melt away so quickly, and it's a very satisfactory feeling. <laughs> the war on weeds. <laughs> We do have uh, one copy left of the Organic Gardener um, Guide to Urban Farming. If someone wants to jump on uh, the phone line and uh, snatch up that last remaining copy, it does include um, a sachet of eco seaweed and we will post that out uh, free of charge to you. So for uh, $12 you'll get that copy of Urban Farming plus the uh, sachet plus uh, postage out to you. So one, we have one copy left. If someone wants to jump on the line and ring uh, 94190155 and Jan will take down your details. Okay, Penny, I noticed you brought in some, uh, some I just bay leaves. In bay leaves. Bay, bay trees are one of my favourite plants in the garden because I think they're one of the most useful plants. So... Um, I, bay trees can be grown into full-size trees, but they can get up to sort of 20 metres high. So, you know, you need to have a really big garden if you're just going to let it go. Um, but they also grow very slowly and they can be grown as a hedge or they can be grown in pots or they can be grown um, as that you can, um, you know, espalier them. You can do all sorts of things to them. Um, and I love them because they are so useful in so many different ways. Not only are bay leaves, if you use them fresh in cooking, just so much nicer oh, than those they? disgusting mm. brown things that you buy in the supermarket. <laughs> that are all they're shriveled just, up. Yeah. And well, they're just, they have no flavour. No, um, none at all. All the life is gone yes. from them. Yeah. yeah. So even if you dry them yourself, they're much, much nicer than the supermarket ones. But fresh, straight off the tree, they're just fabulous. So everyone should have a tree just to use. And once you've got a tree, yeah. you'll never have dry leaves again. No, no never, never. I don't bother drying them because I've got a ready supply. Indeed, yes. But you might want to give some to friends. Okay. And stuff like that. <laughs> or make so a lot Several branches, or. I would yeah. say, yes. Yeah. Well, I, when I, I've got one tree in the middle of the garden that I keep as a ball. And when I prune that back, I actually put all the branches into buckets and sit them out the front with a big free, free bay leaf sign. And they all go. Do they go? Yes. Yeah, yeah. good. The neighbourhood collects them. So. Good. Um, and, but the other thing about bay leaves is that they're really useful for a lot of other things. So I use bay leaves. I put them into my jars of flour to keep um, pantry moth out of, out of the pantry. 
I put them in amongst my papers and I have an awful lot of papers and books. I put um, leaves behind all my books to keep silverfish away. So with the combination of bay leaves and uh, spiders in my house, I have no no silverfish. So I've never had a silverfish problem in the house. And okay. I'm, I'm not a good housekeeper, so it's got nothing to do with me getting around and vacuuming because it doesn't happen very often. Um, so they're fantastic pest repellent plant inside. So you need to replace them every 12 months or so um, and you put them there fresh. Do you crush the leaf no, at all? No, leave it whole. just leave it leave whole. It whole. Yep. Yeah. So, and, and if you've got papers you know, stacked away in a box or something, put, them in, put some bay leaves in between the layers of, layers of papers. Um, and it's also you can use them in sachets to keep clothes moths out of your clothes. So um, if I'm making a clothes moth sachet, I use bay leaves, wormwood, English lavender flowers and Santalina leaves, okay. so cotton lavender. Those yep. four things together work really well against clothes moths. Um, you can also make a really nice rubbing oil out of it for sore joints. So if you get the leaves and sort of crush them up a bit in your in your hands and just pack them down into a jar, pour, pour a light oil over the top, seal it up, put it on a windowsill and um, after about, depending on the time of year, if it's summer you probably only need a month to six weeks, if it's winter you might need three months, you just shake it from you know once a week and then you strain off the off the leaves and you've got a really nice oil that will help to um help with inflammation and soreness in joints you just rub it rub it into the sore part um and the other thing is that there's a legend associated with bay trees that says that if you have a bay tree in your garden your house will never be struck by lightning oh. so really <laughs> everyone needs to have a bay tree in their garden and i what if it's in your neighbor's place like five no, years no, away it's got to be no, no. it's got to be on your property <laughs> and i've been saying that um telling people that in talks for 30 years and and once about 3 years ago someone put their hand up and said no it doesn't work but look, it's obviously the, the um, exception that proves the rule. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, goodness me. So I just think it's a, common, it's a common plant in the garden and I just think we need to really appreciate it because it's a great plant to mm. have in the garden. Mm. Fantastic. So that's why I brought it do in. yours suck them much? Um, yeah, they do a bit. I just cut them off. Mm. Yes, you just need to keep cutting them off as you do with any tree that starts putting out. Which is a bit of a challenge if you're doing a standard specimen, yes. you know, because you yeah. want a nice straight trunk. But it just yeah. means you've just got to be vigilant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And they do, um, they do get this um, bug. Um, I can't remember. I think it's a mite that gets in um, under the leaf, particularly the lower leaves. And uh, Peter Cundall came up with the solution to that, which is just to hose underneath the leaves every every night for about a week, and that gets okay. Because he he had a sprinkler, they had a sprinkler system going that was getting the underneath of the bay tree leaves, and they found that when they had that sprinkler system on, they didn't have this problem anymore. Wow. Mm. excellent. Yeah. All right, let's go to our next caller, and uh, we have Martin, who's in Melbourne. Good morning, Martin. Good morning. Go ahead. Okay, uh, I've got a question about an avocado and a macadamia. I've had both in now for well over 10 years. The avocado was, is a bacon, so both are recommended for Melbourne. It used to flower and fruit regularly at the beginning, and now it's sort of it's quite intermittent. Uh, and I heard the other day on the program that you're now recommending to, to put another avocado with it to cross-fertilise. Yes. Uh, if that's the case, would I get a better result, and what would I put with it? Um, you need an A and a B avocado. So it's to do with when they flower. You might be able to explain it well, better than I can, Tim. 
There is, um, yeah, A and B types, which are, it's, um, they're different flowering sequence according yep. to temperature and overnight temperature and daytime temperature and, and fluctuations in temperatures. Yep. Off the top of my head, I don't remember which one's A and B. I know that they're all classified as A's and B's, and mm. the ideal is that you have an A and a B for best cross-pollination. Yep. Oh, okay. So that's not an A and a B within bacon. Mine's a bacon, so I've got to find another species that matches the yeah, bacon. It'll be another yeah. avocado variety, gotcha. um, which will, and I think bacon is a, an A from memory. I have to, I don't, off the top of my head, I don't yeah, know. I know the two that I've got are Wurtz and Huss, and mm-hmm. they're both A's. Yeah. So there's, okay. there's fewer B's than there are That's A's. Right. But off, again, like you, off the top of my head, I can't remember what the B's but are. But I would add to that, though, that from my research when I was doing some work on this at Diggers, there was a lot of that, a lot of the um, information around the the flowering types mm. was done in northern New South in Wales and in warmer yep. climates. Yep. And that the theory runs that in the cooler climates you don't get as consistent temperature, and the flowering times actually vary as a result of our cooler climates, yep. which means you actually can get one plant of an A type mm. pollinating itself. Uh, yep. So it is. You, yeah, that's where the kind of the concept of it being self-fertile comes from in a different climate, and the fact that it did actually flower and fruit earlier in its life mm. would suggest to me that it's not necessarily a pollination issue that's happening with this tree. Um, it wouldn't hurt to have another type adjacent to it. No, or nearby. because bacon's not as prolific fruiting-wise as some of the other varieties as well. So if you're wanting a, a, a bigger crop, um, again, um, I've just put a Pinkerton in. Mm-hmm. With my bacon, um, it's only very small yet, but um, but to try and, and encourage, you know, that it's fruiting. Some, some that, extra pollination. Yes, yeah. yeah, and and I think, you know, if you're if you're looking to add another variety, yes, choose one of the other type. Um, and I think Penny, are you looking oh, up well. which one's which right now? <laughs> Good. Um, and if if you're you're um, challenged for space. Wurtz is probably the best one to go for because it's a smaller growing variety. Well, so, so it's the Pinkerton. It's yeah, on Pinkerton's, yeah, so stock. and it's it's not so much the stock as far as I understand it, it's the it's the, actual the actual top growth because okay. they're not on they're not on dwarfing root stocks. Oh, okay. They're usually on seedling root stock. Right. Uh, and but Wurtz and Pinkerton are smaller in habit. Yep. So you can fit them into or you can train them better mm. into a smaller yard. So that way you can get the benefit of the cross pollination without max, mm. without having to use all that space. Okay. The other thing that the other thing that uh, people have been recommending recently is that uh, uh, to try cincturing. Have you ever cinctured an avocado? No, I've not. Okay. Um, <laughs> but apparently that's all supposed to really encourage um, fruiting. And I believe if you go to the Daily's Fruit Trees website, they have um, a video on that website okay. as to exactly how to cincture your um, avocado tree. So can you spell that name for me, sorry, that, what that, that term is? Cincturing. C-I-N-C-T-U-R-I-N-G. Oh, cincturing, right. Yes. So apparently bacon is a bee cultivar um, and Pinkerton is an A. Yes. As I know the Iswurts um, and Hass is an A as well. So you've already got the bee cultivar. Yep. So you need to go for an A. Okay. So we'll give it a go. Any of those three. I find Wurtz grows really well at my place. So, um, it, and it, as you say, it's a, it's a dwarf one. So, and I actually keep cutting mine back because I don't want mine to get really big. Mm. Yep. And I get good flowers each year and they're no more than about um, two metres high. Mm. Um, okay. Well, my other northern New South Wales then challenges the macadamia. I've had it in for nearly 15 years. Mm-hmm. It's about 15 foot tall and um, smooth leaf. It was bought because of Melbourne climate. So I was conscious at the time when I chose the species, I can't remember it now, that it should be okay in Melbourne. It's never flowered. 
Okay. So it, you're the, now that you're challenging you me again. There's do you two remember species. which one it is? Is it Integrifolia or Tetraphylla? I, I don't species. remember which one it is. The yeah. one was one. The northern one was spiky leaves, has spikes on leaves, and this is smooth leaved. Yeah, so I think I think you've got the right one for our climate. Fifteen years is a long time. I would have expected it to flower by now. I planted one at my place about six years ago and promised my daughter it would flower by, but would fruit by 2018, and she's holding me to it. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, I think I'm in trouble. Well, I made the same promise to my son, and I've um, let him down. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look, I, it's. They are on the edge, well and truly on the edge. Even the one that's supposedly yeah. better for the cooler climates, they're well and truly on the edge of their range for for decent flowering and fruiting. But, you know, there's one at Heronswood that flowers and fruits. I know last time I was in the studio uh, back in, must have been, I don't know when it was actually. I know AB had some fruit that was her first nuts that she'd got from her garden mm. in Melbourne, so they will. Yeah, and uh, I have a friend in Gippsland who gets them fruiting regularly yeah. as well and producing seeds. Is, so. Should I prune it at all? Is there any maintenance I should be doing to it? Oh, look, I wouldn't think so. How big is it? Oh, it'd be 15 foot. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think pruning is going to help it into a no. flowering and fruiting no. cycle. Um, I'm wondering, is it is it growing happily? Is it is it sort of still in its sort of growing its juvenility and growing phase? Yeah, well. It's certainly growing. Yeah, it's um, none of those trees have a problem with growth. No. So, look, it might just be a factor of time. It might be a factor and, of season And it too. may be where you've got it in your garden. I mean, how much sun is it getting? Oh, full-blown. It's on a, on a, in the inside of a, was it a, a western fence that so gets the morning and okay. sun plus the northern sun and, and the top of it's now okay, getting it the, the western sun. Sounds like yeah. it's all the right conditions. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably a function of the fact that they've different trees, different genetics have different times to coming into flowering and fruiting. Okay, so be, wait, wait another, yeah, wait maybe, another twenty yeah. years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be very Your grandchildren may benefit from it. Yeah, it'll be abundant cropping in twenty and, years. And there you as go. climate change progresses yeah. and the climate gets warmer, maybe one of the few benefits that we get see is True. that, well, is that we're going to be able to grow macadamias. Okay, okay, thank Martin. you, Ben. Good on you. Bye. Thank you. If you'd like to join us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show, and in the studio this morning we have Penny Woodward, Tim Sansom, and Jeremy Francis. So do give us a call. That number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Pam, Tim, yes, can I just sure. say that anyone who wants to plant garlic, you need to get it in in the next two weeks. So I know that Diggers has got quite a bit of really nice garlic left if you're looking for some for some good garlic, particularly some of the late later planting garlics like the standard purple stripes and some of the silver skins and and the creoles. So for um, two weeks. So uh, well, yeah. Well, is it up to the? Up, no, no, no. It's got no. nothing to do with Tim, the shortest day. <laughs> <laughs> nothing to do with the shortest day. That's okay. another nice myth. <laughs> yeah, Two weeks from now. So it re- that really should have been in yeah. by now. But if you haven't put your garlic in, you can get it in. I only planted mine last week, and that okay. was just through slackness. Um, but yeah, so into the first week of June um, in Victoria, you should be fine to get you to get your garlic. Okay. In. And I'm actually going to experiment this year with putting some creoles in in spring. Um, because in France they are the plant that they can plant in in spring, and I want to I want to see whether we can do it here or not. So okay, um, when would you look to harvest that then? So in, um, in the you'd autumn, be, you're looking at six or seven months later. It's a yeah. slightly shorter time because the mm-hmm. climate it's warmer. You're not going through winter, yep. so it all happens a bit more quickly. 
Um, but yeah, six or seven months later. So um, Jan Feb. Mm-hmm. But you can only do it with Creoles because they're the only ones that haven't already sprouted by that time because yep. they're the long storage ones. Yeah. So um, yeah. So if you buy some Creoles, you might like to sit on them and experiment with them as well. I mean, not literally sit on them, but um, <laughs> you don't have to incubate them then. No. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to say, yeah, get your garlic in if you haven't. Okay. Fantastic. All right, as I mentioned, if you'd like to join us this morning, that number 94190155. Tim, let's talk about the offshoot from Australian yeah. Ecosystems. Yeah, so as, as I was talking about at the start of the program, Australian Ecosystems set up as a water treatment um, in the landscape uh, system, so a, a filtering water through biological action. A, a offshoot of this this company that uh, Brendan and a, and a water engineer called Mark Noyce set up is a company called Biofilter, which is a much more uh, condensed urban um, version of a wetland. So it's a it's a sort of a wetland for more um, confined spaces in urban parks, uh, and it's an uh, engineering system combined with a biological system that filters waste water, uh, so so storm water in. Yeah, and so we've got an installation in Birrarung Ma, for instance, where okay. so that, that the the stormwater that's gathered on that site is then treated by biological action and then used back into the parkland, uh, and and then an offshoot of that still is the uh, wicking bed advanced wicking bed system that the biofilter have developed, which is a food growing option op- opportunity for for urban spaces. So. They've got a, a system of food walls, which are being used by schools and um, by areas where there's basically no fertility or you know got vacant space. You can turn this sort of space into active food growing um, space. So we've got a cafe set up in um, in Port Melbourne where we where we're growing produce, which has been used by a local church. Uh, there's also a, a big community garden down in Cape Patterson uh, at a development called the Cape, where through using these advanced wicking beds, we're producing a huge amount of food for little for basically no water usage. So it's capturing water mm. from from the landscape, mm. treating that water, ploughing it back in, or or putting it back in through the system through these wicking bed systems that use a, a you know a fifth of the amount of water that you would normally use in a in a raised vegetable garden. Okay. Uh, and also producing a, 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 a huge amount of crop that is taking less human input too because there's hardly any weeding because it's the, the, the plants basically draw on the moisture from underneath. And um, Brendan and Mark spent some... They were over in the States earlier this year for the Launch Food um, Symposium, which was in San Francisco, where they were invited uh, with a number of other companies to come and talk about their urban food technology, um, which was a, a terrific sort of melting pot of food, um, urban food growers. Uh, and they're starting to get some real traction. We're seeing some some attention in the Wall Street Journal, and Jamie Oliver is starting to jump on board with this with this concept. And so, look, if people are interested in in what the food wall biofilter concept is, jump onto the website. There's a, a website called biofilter.com.au, and you'll see food wall in there as well. The really exciting development that's coming through is food cubes. So these are basically a, almost like a pallet size modular cube of of soil. Um, so it's a soil, it's a, a potting, make, potting mix based or soil based medium, all on a wicking bed that it can all be linked together. Uh, and these are ideal for urban food production in rooftop spaces, in car parks, uh, in spaces where there's lots of waste material coming through that can be turned into productive space. So this is, this is I guess this is um, on the, the whole uh, 
the whole tip of agriculture happening in cities. Mm. Um, you might have heard of some of the, the ag tech that stuff that's happening across the world. There's um, aero farms in the US which are growing hydroponic vegetables in, 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 in factories. It's that sort of one end of the program. This is a bit of the combination between what gardeners can do uh, with soil and grow food in, in urban spaces. So it has an application on a big scale or broad scale for potentially for, for growing you know, industrial or sort of commercial size agriculture in, in, in urban spaces, but it also has terrific potential for little backyard operations. Mm-hmm. If people are time poor, resource poor, looking at ways to closing the loop on their, on their water consumption and water usage, compost linking into that for fertility, you can actually generate in your own backyard a, a highly productive vegetable garden on waste, waste water and waste compost. So it's, when I'm, I'm a soil gardener, I have been for 30 years, uh, and this is still a soil-based gardening system, but it actually has all this benefit of utilising water much more, um, I guess in a much more efficient way, mm. and getting, uh, getting produce uh, available to people who don't have a lot of skill in growing as well because it makes it a bit simpler. Mm. So I gather it's, it's re- you said it can go onto rooftop gardens, these, these cubes. So yep. I gather there's not too much weight in them. No, because they're, they're, they're based on it. It's a soil, it's a soil, uh, it's a, it's a potting media based medium. Uh, so, and they're, they're about a, not even a meter deep. Okay. So they're, and, if you, you would have to, if you were doing it on a rooftop that was, you were putting 20 or 30 or 40 of them, you'd probably want to have some engineering solution yeah, yeah, around yeah. this. Um, but you can certainly put them in a backyard without having to do engineering, engineering solutions. And a few of them, no problem in terms of weight. Mm. Uh, but their real benefit is that they link into your stormwater system mm. and you basically don't have to consume any water from the main's water supply to grow vegetables. Fantastic. And you can turn your crops over really quickly because you've got... Um, an intensive management system. Wow. You mentioned the Cape earlier. Now, that's a whole housing estate, isn't it? It is. So this is another Quite offshoot. exciting project. Yeah. 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 So, again, um, Brendan, who's, uh, who runs Australian Ecosystems Biofilter, he also has uh, the Cape as well, which is a – so if anyone's aware of Cape Patterson, it's a coastal village, a coastal town down the, um, on the sort of east coast. Uh, and Brendan's really keen to – to, to demonstrate and to commercialise how a suburban development or an urban development can be very eco-sensitive. So these houses are up to 10-star uh, energy ratings with some amazing technology in them, including when I was down there a few weeks ago, there was he's got thermal mass uh, insulation in the walls, which actually changes state with temperature. So so it has it's this sort of smart thermal mass that allows allows um, heat to dissipate. In the summertime, and it, but it also then swells up into thermal mass in the wintertime. So, that, so it's, this is some amazing technology. Uh, and as part of that, this, the, the Cape Vegetable Garden, which is all based on the biofilter food wall wicking beds, is a central part of the development where everyone within this, um, this community gets to actively have a, have a place where they can grow their own food. Mm. And, uh, at the moment, they're growing a huge amount of produce with it, which they're donating back to the local community. Um, so there's, and there's, there's, you know, ecological space in there as well. Each of the houses has a charging station for for an electric car. They've got you know, there is a plan for it to have its own power generation facility through through um, solar panels and other renewable energy. So exciting things 
So they're on the technology side. Of wow. It just shows what can be done in the future, doesn't it? That's right. It? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's really forward thinking. Yeah. Mm. Fantastic. Tim, can I just ask, as an organic person, um, where you say that this is soil based. So what's in the it's, So it's soil based in the sense that it's not a hydroponic system. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a pine bark medium. So yeah. it's a it's a um, potting mix medium. Uh, and so it's a substrate effectively. So it's engineered to work, you know, perfectly with aeration and wicking for pulling the water yep. through the system. The nutrient comes from uh, organic material. So we're working with coffee grounds and we're yep. working with other composted materials and putting that through the system. So you, and then as part of the system to integrate a composting system from food waste, kitchen waste and a composting system that, that brings that back through top okay. dressing. So in the in the mix, um, do you, what's your water retention component in the mix? So it's uh, look, I don't know the exact okay. all all the fine details, but there'll be coir, there'll be, yep. uh, and it'll be it, it's it the the potting mix is produced um, by a commercial potting mix yep. uh, pr- provider, um, Biogrow. So and we've been working heavily closely okay. with them on getting the airfield porosity and yep. getting it engineered so that it actually does yeah, the well working job. I mean, if it's with Biogrow, that. I, that's good because they are organically certified. Yeah. They have just got organic certification. Yeah, so, so, so Mark has been working closely with that. them on yep. both. In, so it's the, it's the you've got to work on that magic component yep. of getting the airfield porosity to work so that, the, mm. so that the wicking action works, but also having the fertility in there and how we provide yep. that. So this is in yeah. development. Just the reason I'm asking is because there's some, um, particularly in, in hydroponics, but also now they're, they're getting into, into soil and trying to get this product into soil is using rock wool which is actually used for insulation, but it also holds water. Mm. And, and But it's absolutely not an organic ingredient mm. because it's a highly heat-treated rock made, produces this rock wool, but it's used a lot in hydroponics, and it's one of the reasons, apart from several others, that you can't organically certify hydroponics. And I would hate it if in some of these systems you're starting to put things like rock wool into the mixtures for the for the water um, for maintaining water in the system. The I think the the key with these wicking beds and, and wicking beds have been around for a while yeah, yeah. And, and there's yeah. plenty of homemade recipes. In fact, yeah. my dad designs his own ones which work yeah. really well. The the difference with the ones that Food Wall are doing is it's got a an aeration component, not just in the in yeah. the media, but in in the structure and the platform that's in mm-hmm. there. So really, the the innovation is to do with that and the media itself is. It's actually a fairly straightforward media. It's not. Yep. It's not. There's yeah, not yep. much that's change why, in the media. That's why I was it's, it's asking. I just wanted yeah. to understand. Mm. Yeah. So, they're, but they're all wicking beds. Yep. So they don't need to have any component in the mixture to maintain moisture because you've got the moisture. Because the reservoir is. I mean, it's wicking up. It's wicking up from yep. the bottom from okay. a reservoir on the bottom, yep. and the so action happens by the plants and by yep. the, the 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 adhesion and cohesion yep. in the. So even these the pods that you were talking about are wicking beds yes. as well. Yep, and they can be all interlinked. Yep. Fantastic. Mm, brilliant. I, I hope everyone's taking notes. This is becoming very, very technical. <laughs> go to the, go to the website. Fun. <laughs> Sitting here very early on a Sunday morning. It's one of those things when you work in organics is that you're often confronted by things where you have to, you know, do a double take and think, now, okay, this sounds fantastic, but, you know, what is the, you know, what happens to it when you're finished with it? I mean, how do you recycle it? What, mm. you what know, is the, the big picture? What's yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. What's and, the and the longevity of the yeah, material, too, which is absolutely critical. It's like, like concrete and, and yeah. just how 
Well, if you're building something which is there for several hundred years, most probably concrete's actually quite good. But uh, Mm. if it's there for six months, it's disastrous. Mm. Yeah, Mm. but it sounds really good. Oh, look, it's it's fascinating space to be in. I think I think we're going to see more and more of this ag tech stuff, Mm. and I see YouTube videos on robotic farming and these sorts of things. It feels a bit crazy. but I think we've got to distill down to what are the ones that are functional and mm. and and mm. and I think I, I think it's important to have a filter on it too that says what is the environmental impacts here, what yep. are the long term mm. impacts, and if we're going to bring food production into our cities, how do we do that and close the loop? Mm. It's not just it can't just be a linear yep. system of food no, production right. which follows our supermarket mm. model. Yep. It has to be one where we're conscious of our inputs and outputs and yep. how we cycle them back. Yep, mm. excellent. Okay, let's go to a couple of callers. We have Ken in Sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. Look, I had I bought about 15 years ago a macadamia nut. Right. And the first year I had it, it flowered, four flowers on it. Has it done any, anything since then? No, it hasn't. Right. But the main thing is it's growing in Melbourne. Yep. And it's beautiful. Fair enough. Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think there's actually that's a valid point. They are a beautiful, evergreen, yep. shady tree. You know, yeah. we were looking for trees that are that are good little landscape trees. I mean, macadamia, even even if it doesn't fruit, which it probably will one day. There's a bonus. <laughs> but if, if you can enjoy it as a as a landscape tree, then go for it. Yeah. I am with mine. Yeah, certainly, if they they get that coal mine get the coal mine going in Queensland, most probably will be fruit. Oh, how fancy! Hmm. You know that's going to use. Well, I saw a film the other day on it, going to use 12 million litres a year. Mm. Yeah, yes. Wipe out the great cheese basin. Mm. Yes. Enough said. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks no very much. The height of my macadamia nut tree is about five foot, six mm. or something. It hasn't grown a lot, Good on but you. it's still beautiful. Anyway, I, as long as you're enjoying it, I just think that's I nice. enjoy all gardens. Yeah, I, yeah. I love my garden. Good, Good on night. you, Ken. Bye. Bye. And uh, next up we're going to Kerry in Chelsea. Good morning, Kerry. Good morning. Um, I have a question. We have a store for birch, which is well over 40 years old, and something's eating it near the top, and it's all, all the bark's peeling down. And you can sort of see holes in part of the trunk. So have you got any idea on what we can do about that? That's a very elderly birch tree. I know, and yeah. it survived the drought. But some of it was mm. dead, you know, up near the top, so we had to have that removed. And it seems to be um, those trunks that we had cut off that are now, well, something's eating it, obviously. So could, uh, is it a wood borer or something like that? Well, that's, that's actually, what I was wondering. If you're getting frass around? There is a bit of... Um, yeah, you can see frass around the um, the trunk. It's, in, it's sort of split into three, the trunk. Um, you know, the trunk of the tree. Well, they're not, they're not the long-lived trees. Yeah, I, I would have thought that that's actually reached the end of its life. Oh, and and, and um, yeah, and uh, that's probably the best thing to plant one or two little ones around if you like birch trees uh, in that area, and uh, it, it will. I mean, it's just the main feature in our front garden. <laughs> yeah, 
they're, they're volunteer trees. Uh, they're volunteer trees. So they're, they're trees that grow very quickly and fill in a space and then they have a short life expectancy compared with, um, well, things like oaks and, yeah. and um, um, beech and elms, yeah. And, and Jeremy, would I be right in saying that they're cold climate plants largely yeah, and, yeah, that, and that and with the warming pro- climate they, yeah, they would because I know we've got a couple on the edge of our garden that I didn't plant and, yeah, and I, I think that they're suffering in, with the warmer warmer weather too. Yeah, birch are really problematical in our climate I feel because uh, they're, 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 you're growing them in a climate uh, quite a bit warmer than, they, uh, than they're adapted to and, yeah. and so they're Life expectancy is actually reduced quite considerably, so 40 years is really, really old. Mm. Yeah. And actually, I'm looking at it out through the window, so the top of the trunk, you know, that's all being eaten away. and It's, mm. sort of, um, yeah, it's natural defences are just failing, and uh, there's all sorts of beasties most probably having a go at it. Yeah. Would it help to inject anything into it? or <laughs> Life <Lots. laughs> Uh no, I, I really can't think of any other solution. But if you if you if you must have a birch right there, then plant a small one nearby, and and the big one will gradually. Um, yeah, I um, mean, it's got all lateral branches coming out the the sides of it, and they look all quite healthy. But it's just this main trunk. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's another two. It's split in three. The other two are looking quite okay. Mm. Yeah, anyway. I still think you need to probably plan for succession planting. Mm. <coughs> I think of birch trees like wattle trees or acacias oh, in the Australian really? landscape, oh, which really? which are the first thing to colonise after a disturbance mm. like a fire. Yep. So it's part of the ecology. Yeah. Birch trees in a in a northern forest would be the coloniser after disturbance. Yep. They yeah. would grow. They'd be a nurse tree for the for the older oaks and things that are coming through. Or yeah. so they're a, they have a short lifespan. That's what they are. Oh, okay. Oh, that's not very good news, is it? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's provided so much shade and everything. Yeah, yeah that's very sad. No, our, our, our neighbour has a black wattle. Now, the black wattles are very long-lived compared with most wattles, but yeah. uh, this is huge and magnificent, but it was starting to shed the occasional branch and and uh, several thousand dollars were spent in cabling this tree. But oh, really? Ten years, well, seven years later, the, yeah. uh, the tree's pretty well dead. Yeah. yeah. I know we've lost, um, you know, wattles over the years and everything. They've, you know, because they yeah. don't have a long. Yeah. Well, the birch is the same thing. Yeah. I never. So, what about liquid ambers? I mean, neighbour of ours has got a really old liquid amber. Are they the same or no? Well, they have a much longer life. Yeah. Um, oh, not that I'm going to plant one of those now, but. Yeah, so uh, uh, it's a much bigger tree, of course. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So I think just look at the spot and just think about uh, really what you want growing there. And um, and um, thank you for the birch for being such a handsome tree for well, 40 you, years. Well, you've had 40 years, yes, of, mm. of pleasure out of it. True. So okay. that Christopher Lloyd, he used to plant a... a um, uh, a fir tree in the middle of his perennials, which uh, produced lovely cones, uh, yeah. but the thing grew. But this is right in the middle of his perennials, and this wanted to be a forest tree, but he grew it for about 10, 15 years, and it enjoyed so many years of these magnificent purple cones, and yeah. then he'd chop it out. 
put another one in, and this went on. <laughs> it went through about six um, of these fir trees over the years. No, so yeah, sometimes you have to think in those terms. Well, <laughs> gardening is a cycle of life and death. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is. <laughs> have to be a bit ruthless sometimes. <laughs> okay, Kerry. All right, thank you so much. Okay, bye. See you, bye. Jeremy, we haven't mentioned uh, any of the plants you brought in this morning. You've got a fantastic selection of autumn colouring there. I went whistling around the garden last thing last night and made a very messy, uh, sort of tussy-mussy <laughs> of uh, various autumn colours. And, um, um, well, the Ancianthus perillatus have just been magnificent over the last uh, um, two, three weeks or so. Just brilliant scarlet. So that's the one with the tiny leaves. Right. Um, and uh, their uh, plants, uh, they're quite historic plants with Cloud Hill. They, they came from the Yokohama Nursery back nearly 100 years ago now. So ours are just small shrubs but beautifully grown and, uh, and, and extremely rare in Australia. No common name. There would be a Japanese name for them, but um, little bell flowers in the spring and tiny scarlet, just glowing scarlet leaves. They're the best things for autumn colour I know. Um, there's another. There's a maple which also has quite good colour. Which um, I, I, in fact, the only thing that made me hesitate to bring it in is because it's kind of impossible to pronounce name. <laughs> but. <laughs> It, in the old days, it was the Nico maple. That's a very sensible name for it. But it's got a Latinized Polish name, which I can never quite... Go ever, on, have a go. go. <laughs> <laughs> Maximo Witzianum, something like that. Right. Um, um, and it's a very unusual maple. It's, it's quite, ours is quite big. And again, it's one of our historic trees that came in from Yokohama in the old days. And ours is up about 15 metres high. Turns a soft scarlet and, and soft, soft scarlet and gold in the last two or three weeks of spring, and it's looking pretty good right now. Um, all autumnal things. So there's a hydrangea, one of the hydrangeas which um, um, develops autumn tints in the flowers, and um, this is a, an old 19th century variety called Heinrich Seidel, um, S E. Uh, uh, S-I-E-D-E-L from memory it's a D uh, rather um, um, uh, in the middle there um, but that turns the leaves turn a soft yellow lavender and the flowers develop uh, purplish tints crimson purplish tints the trick with these is to uh, there's several of these old 19th century varieties that that, um, that um, um, build up autumn colours in the flowers and the trick is to grow them in a spot where they flower well so they need sunshine but not so much sun that they scorch mm. that the flowers scorch and then just leave them and there's quite a industry in the hills growing these underneath trees and um, picking them in the autumn um, for the florist trade um, and there's also a couple of grasses. The grass is just looking magnificent at the moment and there's a, a new Miscanthus sinensis variety which has only been sold a little bit uh, called Cosmopolitan and it's quite a strong grower, variegated foliage and it's one of the best for variegated foliage and it's about twice the size of, of the old variegata and uh, with quite good flowers, which are softened to uh, a, a sort of a beige mushroom colour at the moment. 
And finally, there's a species, uh, Miscanthus species, uh, Nepalensis, which is just the loveliest thing. And I'm not too sure that I've ever seen it sold yet. It's a, it's a quite a tricky one. It was interesting that I think Daniel was asking about uh, when and how much to cut back plants because we've been struggling with this one to try and figure out how to grow it. Um, I, was, I was given a few plants uh, several years ago. Um, they form a slightly untidy clump and then the flowers come up quite late in, in um, summer, well, autumn really, and they're pendulous and they fluff up and then they catch the light and they're a, they hold a soft golden colour right through winter. They're, they're just fabulous yes. things mm. for the longevity of the effect and the critical things to plant them somewhere with angled light, with low morning light or evening lights and... Uh, so we we have them sitting in the uh, our warm borders where the um, well <laughs> the uh, uh, the uh, around about noon we there's a bit of light coming through which which makes them glow. Now the trick with these is that if you cut them back you lose them, um, uh, which is most unusual for a uh, for a, a miscanthus. Yeah. Um, and um, so we've experimented and with not cutting it back at all, in which case they're extremely untidy, or just cutting back gently at the end of winter uh, with a little bit of fresh growth coming up. In fact, wait until the spring. Um, and I just noticed in an English magazine just uh, uh, last week that uh, the recommendation is not to cut them at all, okay. simply to rake them with your hand and just remove any dead foliage. Oh, okay. And maybe that's the solution. So that's so we're not going to touch them this this winter, and we'll try that. They're quite mm. small too, aren't they? They're, yeah. They're, very sedate, very, yeah. yeah. So we have them sitting right at the front of the flowers and right beside the path and that they stay quite upright. And it's, but if you can pop them in the right spot and they're happy, the, the longevity of the effect is just yeah, they're staggering. Mm. I've seen them in your borders and I think mm. I've, we must have talked about this a year or two ago. We got a segment and started to grow them at diggers uh, and have had um, trouble Getting <laughs> getting a number, yeah. so again they're not not offered for sale, but a stunning mm. plant. Yeah, mm. uh, they seed very very gently, which is kind of a nice thing, uh, but so gently that there's no way that they're ever becoming there's no weed potential. No, no, no. Mm. yeah, fantastic. Let's go to our next caller, and we have Ray in Cape Patterson. Good morning, Ray. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'd like a little advice on pruning camellias. I've got two uh, fairly large camellias that have had very little pruning in their life. They'd be oh, three metres high, about two metres wide. Now, I'd really want to bring them back to a shape. Can I cut them back hard? You can do what you like with camellias. Uh, you can take them right back to the ankles and they'll regenerate. In fact, we did that with uh, a fairly important camellia right, <laughs> right beside the path into our, leading into our restaurant. So a spot with lots of people walking past every single day. And, and um, But we had a camellia growing about, it was up about uh, 9, 10 metres high and it was multiple stemmed and the sheer weight of the plant was pulling it apart and uh, it was looking very messy, so we decided that um, to to really chop it back. And we we literally went in with a chainsaw and took it back to about two metres high, 
and, and quite literally took off about three quarters of the plant. It was a big old camellia, japonica. And um, and all the wood was exposed. There was no foliage whatsoever. And um, it, we did that in August. And by Christmas, there were buds popping out of the bark everywhere. We rubbed most of those off and left just left those shoots at the end of the the main trunks, if you like. The the uh, plant had about fifteen or so trunks, so you can see what the problem was. Nice. Yeah, and um, now it's it's um, turned into a um, well a large standard if you like it's it's formed a solid canopy. Yeah. Uh, there's a little bit of bud this year, but uh, it'll take another twelve months to settle down and start flowering again. Um, but um, Penny has a uh, bay uh, <laughs> sitting in front of me at the moment and curious enough uh, on the other side of the path we have two standard bays uh, which again we've, we've clipped back exposing the structure of the uh, of a standard bay so you, you have a stem coming up and breaking and, and then dividing into 10-12 branches and then the canopy but it's all rounded and forming a um, tapery effect, but with the branches exposed. So we're doing exactly the same with the camellia. <laughs> you can't do that with too many plants, but camellias are really, really um, uh, relaxed with, what you, with, with cruel treatment, I mm, suppose. Mm. Which is why they can be used so beautifully as a hedging plant yeah. as well. Yeah. There's, a, there's a garden, I'm trying to think, there's a garden in Portugal... Um, quite old uh, most of the plants are um, about 200 years old and it's full of hedges and, and amazing tapery shapes very elaborate tapery shapes and apart from grass the only plant used in this entire garden is camellias the mm. entire garden is made out of camellias mm. are clipped into very elaborate tapery shapes yeah. now ours have uh, got buds on them at the moment do I wait till the uh, flowers have come out? If you're just clipping, if you if you just want to take a plant back by you know ten twenty percent, yes, uh, clip after flowering. And so with japonicas, which is obviously this what the, 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 the plant you have is a japonica, yeah, must probably uh, in about six eight weeks time. Yeah. Well, I, what I what I want to do is take it back about or. About a foot, I suppose, just and give it some shape. So uh, if I cut all the leaves off, I'm just left with the yeah, the, the branches. Wood, yeah. yeah. Look, so it's better better to leave a few uh, some canopy. Uh, look, camellias they, they they seem to put up with quite a bit of sun onto the bark, but cutting plants back hard like this um, well I can think of beaches with very thin bark and if you cut back a beach um, it, again it will um, there's buds underneath the bark everywhere and it will uh, throw shoots everywhere but if you expose the bark to full sun the, the bark can be damaged by hot sun and, and you suddenly have a very sick tree and uh, the <laughs> without putting shade cloth over it, which, which, which would be one solution. The, the better solution is to cut it back in such a way that there's enough foliage to shade the bark. Um, Could you do it sort of over two years? So you cut yeah, some exactly, this year exactly. and, and then some yeah. next year. And depending on how the plant looks. Yeah. But uh, it, it, it just stand there and look at it and figure out what shape you want. And, and well, this, this time of the year, is, we're not going to get the hot sun now. No. No, no. No, oh, I, 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 I could do it now, couldn't I? You oh, could, well, provided yeah. you're prepared to lose all your flowers for this year. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, you can cut, cut camellias back at any time. Right, okay. And what about feeding? When I cut it back, do I feed it up? Well, in the spring. Nom, nom, it won't do much over the winter. It. It's not no. going to use the feed now, is it? No. Oh, yeah. Don't, don't feed it till the spring. That's yeah. right. Yep. Okay. I've I've seen a collection of camellias which were hadn't been touched in in thirty forty years, all taken back to kneecap height <laughs> with a chainsaw, and uh, this is a, a collection of camellias on the edge of a uh, nursery that a lot of people visited, and there were a lot of very upset people for twelve months, and then they watched these in, this entire collection of camellias just regenerate at at waist height and shoulder height, and everyone astonished. This I might have was in Western Australia, and no one was quite used to the idea of <laughs> of cutting back camellias. Yeah, uh, uh, what Millie said, I think, um, do it in uh, over a couple of years. Take back half this this year and half next year. Yeah, just for for aesthetic purposes, really. And 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 look, it is better for the plant. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's that's fine. Um, Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's all I need. No, thanks very much. Good on you, Ray. Bye. Okay. Bye now. Pam, just talking about autumn colours, I was in the children's garden at Botanic Gardens a couple of days ago. All right. And they've got um, persimmons that are in full colour at the moment. Oh, glorious. As, as, well as, as well as the pomegranates. So the beautiful butter yellow of the pomegranate and the yes. beautiful reds and oranges of the persimmons. So I think it's important that we don't forget that you know you can get fabulous colour with edible plants mm. as well. And mm. um, I just I haven't grown persimmon; they don't seem to do very well in in my garden. Um, so I was just astounded at the colours because they've got a whole row of them along the fence in the children's garden in the edible part of the children's garden, there, yep. and they just look fabulous. So if you're in there over the next couple of weeks, you should go in and have a look. Fantastic. Okay. The other thing is, Tim, you've brought in some pine mushrooms because it is funky time in Melbourne. Yes, I've, I live next to the bush and in a part of the bush where I am there's a bunch of Monterey pines, yes. uh, Pinus radiata, uh, which are not a favoured species in the bush, but it has the benefit of hosting the pine mushroom, which is one that I harvested yesterday and I had some for dinner last night. Now, when we're talking about wild foraging uh, fungi, I think it's vital that we let people know that they need to know what they're exactly. harvesting and if you're exactly. going to eat it, there are some dangerous species oh, out there. Yes. <clears throat> about, oh, it must be about 10 years or so ago now, I did a um, uh, fungi ID day up mm. in Dalesford because um, there's some terrific fungi in the, in the wombat forest up there. Mm. And from that day, I learned a couple of species that I know Absolutely, 100% that I can eat. And so pine I'm, mushroom, luckily, is one of those and species. And pine mushroom is one of the most distinctive. Because they're very distinctive, distinctive yeah. aren't they? Mm. Yeah. They don't look like it. They, you know, to the, to the untrained eye, they are orange. And when you bruise them, they bruise green. And you would think that that's a, mm. a harbinger <laughs> of toxicity. <laughs> but they're not. They're, that, in fact, both of those characteristics are very good ID characteristics, which means that I'm confident that I know that this is one that I can, yes. that I can eat. Yes. So the pine mushroom is an orange mushroom. 
Um, so orange, orange gills too. So if you turn it upside down, some mushrooms have gills and some have uh, like pores or spores or pores actually. Mm. Um, so this one's quite distinctive. It's also known as the saffron milk cap. Mm. Uh, so if you can look it up, you'll, you'll see plenty of pictures on the on the web that you know. If you check images on Google and look at saffron milk cap can, or pine can, mushrooms. Can I just say that there's a really really good um, website called Fungi Map um, on on the web, which is run by um, Peter May, the oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a scientifically based one, but they 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 use citizen scientists and they get people to take photographs of things. If you want to find out more about Australian fungi, and that's mm. important, both the introduced and the native fungi, that's a really really good site mm. to go to. Well, this is an introduced fungi, being yeah. a pine mushroom, yeah. as are um, as are all the field as, mushrooms, as are all the field mushrooms and the yeah. slippery jacks too. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, so there's. I live in Arthur's Seat, Red Hill. I'm driving on the streets every day, seeing people foraging yeah, around I on know. the street sides yeah. at the moment, which is really wonderful to see, actually. There's people yeah. out there engaging in their yep. in their forests. Mm. I've got a couple of secret spots, which I'm not going to tell you where they no, are. No, no, <laughs> fair enough. And with the introduced fungi, it's actually really good that people are going and collecting them because otherwise they're a bit like weed species. They do spread into areas where you don't necessarily mm. want them and they, they um, force out some of mm. the... Um, indigenous species, and because you just what we're collecting, what the mushrooms yeah. that we know is the flowering body, the, the, the which is the, the, right. the organism itself yeah. is actually in the ground. That's you know, right. It's there all year. Yep. It's just this time of the year we, we see them pop up. Yep. The other thing with the pine mushroom too is if if you look at the cut stem, that is also it's usually hollow, um, and often it will have that same orangey colouring um, around the cut stem. So. <laughs> Kind of a soft orange, isn't it? It's a, yes. Yeah, I, I'm absolutely intrigued by this because I was once uh, uh, chatting with some uh, a, um, a vineyard people uh, in the Mornington Peninsula, and the husband was Australian, and he'd married an Italian. His wife was Italian, and uh, and several years earlier she'd spotted these mushrooms growing underneath some pine trees just down the road, and, and she'd been <laughs> helping herself to these mushrooms for several years. And uh, speaking to the husband, he couldn't bring himself to touch them. Mm. Uh, quite sure that uh, surely they had to be toxic or something <laughs> disastrous. Yeah. But um, no, they, they, she was thoroughly enjoying them. So well, my have, kids what, have the same reaction. Touch? When I cook them up, they're like, "You're not really going to eat them." <laughs> yeah, of course I am. And uh, how would you rate them, Tim? Oh, they're a, they're a lovely mushroom. Mm. Yeah. Look, um, I, I normally like last night. I just sort of chopped them up in a bit of butter and fry them up. I fry them on quite a high heat pretty yeah. quickly. Uh, and just when they soften, they're lovely. That's that's all I do to them. Mm. I'm no great culinary chef, though. I'm sure there's some other ideas out there for how to prepare them. I, th- I think one of the things that you've well, particularly got to be careful of are the ones that look like filled mushrooms. That's that right. Yeah. Aren't. And, that's and right. one of them is the yellow stainer, Bank, yep. which if you run your finger across the top, you it actually get, yellow, bright, you get yellow. Yellow, bright yellow stripes across it. And I had a whole lot coming up underneath the tree that I would have sworn were filled mushrooms. But they weren't. They were yellow stainers as soon as you rub your fingernail mm, across so. it. And equally, you shouldn't worry about fungi coming up in your garden too. And, and it's been a really good year for fungi this year. Mm. Just leave them. They're not doing any harm. They're part of the breakdown process. You'll often find them coming up in imported manure or, or um, straw or something like that coming in. These are actually coming up under a tree which had lots of leaf mulch under it but was nothing imported. I'd never seen them there before but suddenly this year they're 
appearing somewhere where I haven't added anything new to the garden. But they're important for the breakdown of, of mm. the matter and they're important for getting nutrients to plants. So there's this idea that fungi in the garden are, a, you know, they're showing that something's mm. going wrong, but they really aren't there. And in fact, if I need to move fungi, I actually put them in my compost. Oh, so and that, so that they then go back out in the garden. And there's there's quite a bit of research being done on mycorrhizae in yep. associations yes. with yes. trees. Mycorrhizae yep. are the little the fine filaments yep. that are actually the the living organism of the mm. fungi, and there are plenty of trees that have a very close association yep. Um, yep. with with fungi and need, in fact, need. Yep. And it's and, even and happening a, in in propagation yeah. of many trees. Yeah, and and it's not just trees; it's all your plants. Actually, you know, if you want to have really, if you want to be getting your nutrients from your soil without having to feed them chemical fertilisers all the time, you need the fungi in your soil to That's be right. doing that. You They're can double the root system. The, yep, yep. Yeah, they ba- basically the extend the root system of plants yeah. by tacking in yep. the fungi. Yep, definitely. Okay, let's go to uh, Kim, who's out in Reservoir. Good morning, Kim. Yeah, good morning, panel. How are you? We're well. That's good. Um, I've got two questions. One, I have to admit, I must have had a little quick doze when... Penny was talking about it, um, and that was, is it too late to plant the garlic? And I've been told, no, I've still got a couple of weeks, but I put mine in polystyrene boxes because I've got a dog that likes to um, help garden when I'm not at home. And yep. If, and is that a good way of getting them going? Uh, look, polystyrene boxes are fine. If you leave them in there, you won't get really big garlic. But it, you, okay. can, you can absolutely grow garlic in boxes and pots and those sorts of things. Yeah, and... Even if I've got a, a big one, I'm still not going to get a, a big box. I'm still not going to get a very big bulb. Is that right? It depends how closely you plant them together, um, okay. and it depends how deep the soil is. Ideally, garlic likes about 60 centimetres depth. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, okay. They have a, they put down a really strong root system before they get strong leaf growth up the top, and and if you want to have um, decent sized bulbs, you need to accommodate that root system. Okay. But you, as I said, you can. I know people who grow them, grow garlic in polystyrene boxes, and they don't get massive bulbs, but they get really nice garlic. Okay, so well. you know, don't um, don't not do it just because that's all you've got. No, no, no I won't. And um, the other thing is, I've got a sweet potato out the front, yep. and that seems to be going okay. And when I uh, the chap I got it about autumn, I'm meant to propagate it and cut it off. And now, but I can't remember if that's right or not. Um, or do I just let it just keep going and doing its merry thing? Um, what's, which one is it? Because there are some sweet potatoes that are just oh, ornamental. I, can't I, had, I, I cannot remember, and of course I wrote the label down and then put it in the same okay. place. What colour leaf? It's a greenish leaf. Okay. All right. Well, it's probably an edible sweet potato yeah. then. Oh, no, it's definitely an edible sweet potato. Yeah. Yep. It's just there's a golden leafed one that is grown more as a landscape plant than than to actually grow um, sweet potatoes. And a purple leaf one. And too. a purple leafed mm. one. Yeah, no, no, it's definitely. Um, um, so it's in, a green. Yeah, he was definitely selling two edible ones. Yep. And um, I got them from the Ivanhoe Garden okay. place. So, yep. you know, they're definitely uh, from the Garden Club place. Okay, well, look, autumn's the time that you should be harvesting sweet potatoes. That okay. If you've got any tubers that have formed, then they should be there. Um, and at the same time as you harvest them, you can take cuttings from your leaves and replant the cuttings for your next year's crop. The only problem is going to be is if you get frosts, because frosts yep. will kill sweet potato. Okay. 
All right, that sounds fantastic. Thank you very much. Good luck. I okay. hope you've got some there because you I do. So do I. I can't wait to it dig it up. It needs to be day. fairly warm before yeah. you'll actually get tubers. But the other thing that's worth knowing is you can eat the eat the tips and the yeah. leaves. So the new tips and leaves. Okay. You can eat, you can actually eat those. And so if you want to worry. if you want to get more plants, if you want to propagate them, you can actually propagate from the stems any time yeah. in the spring and summer. They'll when yeah. they're in active growth and they 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 shoot roots pretty quickly yeah. off the stems, but then they'll okay. take quite a while to develop tubers. Well, I'll give it a try come spring. Okay. No worries. Thank you very much. Good on Thanks, you. Bye-bye. Kim. Good luck. All right. Um, we should uh, just quickly mention, firstly, um, Jeremy, Cloud Hill, glorious place to visit, as always. <laughs> um, I have, are you still running series of workshops or have they dwindled off over the winter time? Yeah, um, diggers workshops. Just yes. uh, <laughs> pull, my, pull my notes out. Um, yeah, sowing seeds for beginners is the next workshop. And um, when's that no, coming up? Uh, that, that's coming up in the th- uh, the first uh, Saturday of June, so okay. uh, t- uh, fairly soon. Um, and Mai is is running that, uh, and um, so you actually see her working the, um, in the shop um, several days a week. Um, and that's uh, 10.30 on Saturday, the 3rd of June. Um, and 1pm, now this is, I've, I've got notes here, and I, should, I meant to really just check on this, but um, the workshop in the afternoon by Pete Thomas is Creating Pots for Your Garden. And in my understanding of this is it means throwing and firing pots rather than putting plants together in pots. So oh, okay. it's actually creating pots Pottery. for gardens. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously creating <laughs> pots for gardens. Yes. But but but, but uh, maybe check with staff and make sure my understanding of that is right. But yes, that's that's absolutely yes. look Oh yes, picture. there he is. Uh, the gentleman himself <laughs> throwing pots. Yeah, that's what I meant to do last night. <laughs> um and the garden, well, the garden's looking pretty handsome at the moment, just going into its wintry effect, but the last leaves of autumn, uh, the grass is really looking magnificent. And we, we, we have, oh, I have no idea how many grasses now, maybe 70, 80 different types of grass scattered Gosh. through, okay. experimenting with everything, you know, quite a few of the exotics all the way through to kangaroo grass and a nice little patch of kangaroo grass, which is... Mm, I can spend hours talking about. Um, and, and which, you know, you can collect the seed of and make your own yeah. flour out of and make your own bread. Yeah. So, uh, kangaroo. kangaroo. Yes. Well, kangaroo. Uh, it was pointed out to me that the, the kangaroo grass, uh, Themida, is uh, the distribution of, of kangaroo grass is up the east coast of Africa and across the, uh, the southern coastlines of uh, Asia and into Australia and up to Japan. It exactly... Uh, tallies with the migration of uh, early man out of Africa, okay. um, what, 60,000, 80,000 years ago. Mm. Now, is it a coincidence? We, we, <laughs> no one knows. Well, they did change the name from Themida Australis to Themida Triandra. Maybe yeah. that was, mm. we were disowning it. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's more global than ours. Oh, it's, it's quite a, yeah, it is it's a global a plant. plant. I'm growing it in a yeah. big clump this mm. year and I've really enjoyed it. It's lovely golden foliage yeah. and it's the seed uh, and, and, and there's a bit yeah. of uh, variation in it too. Yes. And you, you can mm. see that as you see plantings around Melbourne and we're, we're growing the blue form mm-hmm. and uh, that's a very Mingo, thing. is it called Mingo, the blue form, I think? I'm not absolutely sure. It came as little tubes and we popped it in and mm. it's just growing handsomely as a patch. Mm. 
Mm. Excellent. Mm. Okay. Now, just before we go too, Tim, you wanted to mention you're actually on the committee of Victorian Schools Garden oh, Awards Oh, yeah. Now. I've recently joined the VSGA, Victorian School Garden Awards. I uh, just wanted to mention that it's in its 40th year. I know yes. you've had a long association with it as well. Yes. Uh, just recently we had our grants application close, so that's the first round. So there's a grants component and then there's a, an award component later in the year. Uh, we had a record number of applications for the grants. Excellent. Fact, I don't know what you guys do on a Saturday night, but last night I was going through entries for the orchard. Yes, right. <laughs> that's my, my social life. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, exciting um, thing, uh, development for me, and I'm happy to be involved in it. And I just wanted to put it out there to any teachers, parents, principals, um, jump on the VSGA website uh, and have a look at uh, what we offer and have a look at what uh, the award applications for later in the year, which I think opens on the 1st of July. Okay, well, that's not that far away. It's not really, no. And there's, there's, there's some fantastic awards in that. And, and then it, uh, it all culminates in a big awards ceremony in at the Botanic Gardens that's in right. Melbourne. Yep. Um, I think it's going to be uh, end of November that's, yep. uh, this year coming up. But, uh, and, and are there any, uh, are they, are they running any workshops this year? I know Basil Natoli used to run a yes, lot of and Basil's workshops. Still, Basil's still um, involved in running some. Look, jump on the website. I don't have it to hand which what workshops are on, but yes, there's still part of the charter of the VSGA is to run workshops for teachers, uh, two or three a year. Yes. Um, so have a look on the on the website, and you can, and for teachers and for parents and gardeners alike, you can have a look at what's being offered mm. uh, for some workshop information. I know they were running um, a big uh, a big workshop for teachers out at Melbourne International. Flower and Garden yep. Show again this year yep. um, when yeah, the so program a, was a, launched. Yeah, full day intensive. That's uh, right. Was, uh, for the, and I actually came along and did a bit of a question and answer on that. So I was there for the, the end of the day. They looked like they had received a lot of information over yep. that day. Yep. Uh, I was out there at, for the launch at yeah, the start okay. of the day, so <laughs> chatting to some of the teachers who were looking forward to the Yeah, the there day was of, a great energy around that. Yes, I was really yes, enthused. Yes, wonderful. But um, uh, it's a wonderful resource for teachers that really want to start a school garden and have no idea what to do, you can get so much help. Just contact um, VSGA, um, look up their website. Um, I, uh, uh, Tanya is the, uh, the, the program yep. coordinator and she would be the one to have a chat to um, uh, about how to, how to get involved or how to get some information um, about all yeah. of it, but it's we're, we're trying to work up because it's associated with. Well, it's hosted through the Nursery and Garden Industry Association yes. of Victoria. Um, so, through the committee, we're, we're trying to establish a link to industry, so so we can get some industry experts available to teachers. Good. So keep an eye on that because we're looking at working up a bit of a model on how how teachers can then tap into resources from the garden and nursery industry to help them set up and maintain school gardens. Yep. Excellent. Okay. Well, we have run out of time for another week. You have been listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Um, we will uh, be back again, of course, next week, starting at 7.30. Uh, every week it's 7.30 through till 9.15. Um, we do enjoy your company. We love you to phone in each week uh, with your gardening questions. I might also quickly mention that... Uh, Coming up on the 25th of next month, that's 25th of June, we will be having our annual uh, gardening show, Radiothon. Now, this is our annual event for fundraising for the running costs of the station for the next 12 months. So very, very important to us that uh, we have lots and lots and lots of goodies coming in at the moment. We're sourcing all of that so that we can uh, tempt you 
on the day to uh, to jump on board. It's a wonderful way of getting um, early uh, Christmas uh, gifts if you run a garden club or a school or um, and you want some giveaways. It's also a wonderful way of getting uh, some of those. So that's all coming up. Put it in your diary. 25th of June will be the gardening show radiothon. So do jump on board then. But in the meantime. Tune in uh, next week at 7.30 and uh, stay listening because coming up next is Alternative News. Until next week, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.